morning, good morning, good morning. We're glad you're with us. Those of you that are joining this morning at New Life after the gathering, if you're here live, I need a couple of people to help me out right afterwards and uh, see Pastor Kyler right after the service is over, the gathering is over. We're gonna unload the bounce slide out of the back of my truck and put it in the warehouse and many hands make light work. So if you can stick around right afterwards and see her, uh, we'll get that taken care of. It'll take less than five minutes with just three or four people if you can help me. Also, we wanna encourage our teens, the youth are leaving on Friday and they're going to youth convention and we're so excited for them. It's going to be a powerful time uh, of, of celebration, but also a time of learning and growing together in the Lord. And so pray for our teens. They've been doing fundraisers to be able to go to this and we're so excited for them. Next weekend, Pastor Trinity said is miracle offering weekend. It is going to be a miracle. We are believe- And you get to be a part of that, that miracle next weekend. Let me just tell you, we already had somebody uh, come by and and share their resources. Well, somebody didn't come to the church. They just, because of what God has been doing in their grandchildren through New Life Network, dropped off a, a, a check. And, and, and so the first $6,000 has already been given by somebody who doesn't even attend our church uh, for a miracle offering Sunday. I'm telling you, this is going to be a big deal. You're like, well, how much, how much do people typically give? I don't know. Whatever you feel you can give. A few years ago, our South Stockton campus, which because of COVID, we had to, we had to kind of stop that for, uh, for now, but uh, that South Stockton campus generated $613, and that was their miracle offering, and that was just as much as the $40,000 that came from the other campus. I'm just telling you, that was a miracle. So what is a miracle to you? Well, it's whatever you think you can do, and then double down, baby, and can somebody say amen? Because we don't ask for multiple offerings during the year. Just one time a year do we take a special offering, and that's next weekend here at New Life Church, and we want to go further and faster than we ever thought possible. We're going to give you, share with you a big announcement the next two weeks, and a lot of it is dependent upon how we do with the miracle offering. I just got done preaching at our River Islands campus a couple hours ago and shared with them that because of the miracle offering last November, we were able to launch that campus successfully, and there were almost 50 people, maybe a little bit more than that, that were meeting today, and they were. it was kind of cool and cold out. I guess for Central California, it was a really a cold morning, blistering, just terrible cold out there. It was freezing. People were in park. It was terrible. I mean, we had to uh, hand warmers and earmuffs, and now uh, they just um, like suck it up. You're, you're fine, but it, but it was chilly, right? A few months ago, it was sweltering hot out there. So the the weather changes for an outdoor campus. But they were there worshiping God, and they were celebrating because they realized, wow, if it wasn't for the people who gave in the miracle offering last year, they might not have had an opportunity to have a place that they could worship at this year. And so we want to pay this thing forward and do as much as we can. Don't underestimate what God can do. Somebody say Amen. Come on now, guys. I need your help today. It's going to be a great Sunday. I'm excited about this. Here we go again. Need to share with our Lathrop campus. Here we go again. Um, I just got done telling you not too many weeks ago that it was at the city council meeting with Pastor Trinity and Pastor Tasha. We advocated for the city of Lathrop um, and coming against cannabis dispensaries coming into the city limits, being able to distribute uh, cannabis to uh, people, um, uh, and it, not medicinally, but just recreationally. And we thought, well, it had been 2018, we fought the fight, we won. Then in 2021, we fought the fight, and we won. We thought probably 
probably going to be another three years. Less than three months later, they're back again, Monday night at the city council meeting. Um, it sounds like they've gotten the air of at least two, possibly three, maybe more of the city council members um, who I admire, and I'm on your team, but I'm willing to go head to head with you uh, about this. And we're, we're going to show up on Monday evening at seven o'clock and fight the good fight on behalf of your families, on behalf of this community. We believe that that is not a healthy thing to do to create a, self, a, a safe community. Now, wherever you stand on the issue of cannabis, I'm sure that nobody wants a cannabis dispensary next to the church. But the only place in Lathrop that they've deemed as safe for them to be able to have a cannabis dispensary is right here in this area. There is no other area. They've read it off all of Mossdale, all of Old Lathrop, all of River Islands, so that only leaves one area, and that's this area where currently there are four churches of various denominations that meet every weekend, and so right here our neighbors are going to be, and I'm just not willing to do that. So I need you to, number one, uh, pray. Number two, if you can show up tomorrow evening, seven o'clock, City Hall, just sit with me. You don't have to say anything. Just sit with me. I'd love to be able to have um, a, a little bit of representation, but I will definitely be the voice of, of reason, and I believe the voice of, of God uh, speaking on behalf of the people and the children and the families here in the great uh, uh, city of Lathrop. Did you know that Lathrop was one of the top 10 uh, healthiest cities in uh, the state of California? In fact, it's one of the top 20 healthiest cities they've rated it in the United States of America economically coming through the pandemic. In other words, our leadership has done a great job with infrastructure and savings and, and resourcing and so forth. And this city has bounced back from 11 years ago when we came here and 55% of the homes were in foreclosure. And now the city is one of the healthiest economic cities in the nation. And I'm here to say there's no reason. We don't need the money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We don't need the money in this city bad enough to be able to bring all the problems that are going to be associated with this. And so I'm just trying to stand up for you on behalf of your families and the, the great city of Lathrop. So pray for us as we fight that good fight once again Monday evening. Somebody say amen. Praise the Lord. If you're watching online, you agree, give us a comment. We'd like to hear, hear your support uh, and, and uh, you're, you're partnering with us in prayer. All right, well, I want to share with you uh, the message that God has burned on my heart, and I'm so excited uh, to, to do this. We have been studying the story. The story is a 31-chapter book, and the 31 chapters takes us chronologically through the entire Bible. We are now on the 13th chapter of the story, so we're nearing 50% through this series already, and I'm gleaning and understanding so much, and I appreciate so much the way that this is assembled and put together. The last time, last week when I talked to you, I shared with you that we were talking about the life of King David. David has now been king for 40 years, and uh, he's dead. Uh, David has died. And so now, the one who took his throne was his son. His son's name is Solomon, King Solomon. Let me just put this in perspective. This is the son of David and his wife, Bathsheba. And you might remember Bathsheba is the one that he had the adulterous affair with, uh, that he had her husband murdered. And, but anyway, they had a son, and he worked, David worked his life through grace and, and, and forgiveness from God and repentance. And so Solomon, their son, is now the king of Israel. And Solomon, one evening, has a dream. It seems like a lot of stories in the Bible start with a dream. If you have a dream, sometimes it's the pizza you had the night before. Sometimes it's just the, the, the sleep cycle that you're in. But sometimes God is speaking to you through, 
through dreams. Solomon has a dream unlike dreams that we've seen before, like Joseph. Joseph had a dream that his brothers would bow down to him. It was like a prophetic dream. But in this dream, it's, it's different. God says to Solomon in his dream, well, you get to make a choice. Page 176, toward the bottom, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse number 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever you want me to give you. I think a lot of us would probably respond to this with a, what? Whatever I want, God is going to give to me? The wealth and the popularity and the fame, maybe the stuff you've been wanting or the healing that you've desired. What is it that you want? Ask for it and I will give it to you, God is telling him. So the first question I would have is what what would you ask for? Well, check out what Solomon asked for in his dream. Top of the next page, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse number 9. So this is the, the words of Solomon speaking back to God in his dream. So give your servant, in other words, give me a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, to be able to tell what's right and what's, what's wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? I love Solomon's response. He, I think his response made God smile. He didn't ask for wealth and fame. He didn't ask for stuff. He didn't even ask for anything selfishly. He's like, just let me have wisdom. And God was appreciative and very happy and very proud that Solomon asked for this. So we continue reading. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. Solomon is starting his leadership journey off correctly. He's starting his kingship off on the right foot. In fact, the Bible tells us he was the wisest person that ever lived. One example of his wisdom, I don't know about you, but when I pray for wisdom, I I want wisdom instantaneously. I really do. I want God to give me wisdom that's so natural it just oozes out of me in a nanosecond. Rather than having to step back and pray about it, I can just respond with wisdom. And that's what Solomon was able to do. In fact, one time there was two young ladies. Both of them were prostitutes, and they both uh, just had newborn babies. They were apparently sharing the same dorm or the same room, but there was a bed on this side and a bed on this side. They both were sleeping in their beds with their babies. One of them rolled over in the middle of the night, and she smothered her child, and her child died. She woke up in the middle of the night. She, took, she realized her child was dead. She snuck her dead baby over into the other lady's bed and took the healthy baby and put the healthy baby in her bed. 
In the morning, they both woke up, and both mothers were saying that the healthy baby is my baby. So they find themselves before the king who has to administer justice. He has to make a decision, and he has to do it rapidly. And so they plead their case. This mama over here says, the baby is mine. It's my baby, and she stole the baby in the middle of the night. The baby is mine, and she's saying that this is my baby because she rolled over on her baby, and her baby died. And they're arguing back and forth, and Solomon's like, silence. Bring me a sword. Cut the baby in half. Let her have half the baby. Let, him ha- let her have half the baby. And immediately, immediately, the one of the wo- moms said, wait a minute, wait a minute, sir, my Lord, let her have the, ch- the child. The child is hers. And the other mother is like, that's right, that child is mine. And immediately Solomon knew that the woman who said, give her the child, is the mother. Because she's willing to sacrifice having the child so that the child could be healthy and whole and not be killed. And because of that, his wisdom allowed him to say, give her the child and throw her in prison. Um, wisdom, wisdom constantly, all the time, discerning spirit, it was within Solomon, and God gave him those responses. He was the wisest man who ever lived, wrote the Proverbs recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, his history, his thoughts, very, very deep, full of wisdom. He was also the wealthiest person that ever lived. He didn't ask for wealth, but God gave him wealth. Wealthier than anybody who ever lived, including currently today. Puts, puts uh, uh, Bezos uh, uh, to shame. Um, is wealthier than, uh, than any of the wealthy people that you think about today. And in fact, things are so going so well for him that in four years, the first four years of his kingship, he decides he's going to build a temple for God. You know, so far, the Ark of the Covenant um, has had the presence of God in it. It's been traveling with the children of Israel, but now that they've got their own nation, now it's time for them, rather than having the presence of God in a tent called the tabernacle, it's now time to build a permanent structure for the presence of God. So Solomon goes ahead and constructs this elaborate temple for God. It's actually not that big. It's about the size of, of this campus that we have, this couple of buildings. That's, that's as big as it is. But it's not the size, it's the opulence, it is the, um, the ornateness, the, all of the details that are put into it. And it's all described for you uh, in the book that you read, in the chapters that you read this week. And so all of this is happening, things are going great in Solomon's kingship. Well, and then something happens in Solomon's life. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's international news. When an airplane that's basically a metal tube traveling at 30,000 feet going 500 miles per hour crashes. When it crashes, it leaves carnage, it leaves debris all over. It's an international crisis. It's, it's, it's pandemonium until, until the search and rescue crew gets there and they try to see if there's anybody still alive. Most of the time, nobody, nobody survives. And then they begin their search. Through all of the carnage, all of the debris, they're searching for one thing. And you know what that one thing is. They're looking for the black box. They're trying to find the black box because when they find the black box, the black box is gonna help them identify two things. It's gonna give them data. 
FYI, a little bit of a, a hit the pause button, I wonder why they can't build the whole airplane out of black box material if the black box survives and nothing else. You know what I'm talking about, but I, I digress. The black box has all kinds of data, and the data in it will answer two questions. Number one, how did this happen? And number two, how can we prevent this from happening in the future? Oftentimes, we read the Bible, and when we read the Bible, we're reading the Bible to learn what happened. It's historicity. It's historicity of the Bible. It's what happened in God's word. And it's important for us to know what God's word says. But if we leave it there, we're nothing more than scholars. We're hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. And so I'm gonna suggest to us today that we look at the life of Solomon and we find the black box. And we take a look at the data in the black box and we see what happened to his family, number one. And number two, how can we prevent that from happening in our lives today? That little indestructible box gives so much information and so much and so much data. And so we want to learn how we can improve our own families. Solomon is known as a king who pursued happiness. He wanted to be happy. He used all of his resources to try to find pleasure in life. If there's a, a cultural equivalent to uh, Americans today, I think it could be Solomon. I mean, if you ask somebody, what, what, what is it um, that, that's the purpose of life? Or, or the, what do you want for your children? I want them to be happy. Happiness is something that we seek after. Um, it's something that we give our time to. It's something that we give our attention to. It's something we give our resources to. Happiness and pleasure. If you've got an itch, you should scratch it. If you've if you, if you got a desire, then you ought to satisfy that desire. That's how Solomon lived his life. But he took it to the nth degree. He took it to the extreme. Um, he thought, well, laughter Comedy would make him happy. So he dialed into Comedy Central and he got all the, 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 the uh, uh, comedians to come and do live performances for him. And he thought, well, that's, that's funny, but, but it didn't last. He tried drinking and partying, but it didn't bring much lasting happiness. In fact, it left him feeling empty, left him feeling meaningless. Boy, I wish that we could learn from this. And he also tried projects. He decided, well, I'm going to stay busy. I'm going to build houses. So he built a house, and he built another house, and another house, giant edifices uh, for himself. He built parks. He built vineyards. He created all kinds of, of buildings, but it, it left him unfulfilled. He, he took up all kinds of hobbies, but his hobbies didn't make him happy either. So he surrounded himself with all kinds of, of servants, um, maids and chefs and butlers and chauffeurs and massage therapists and personal shoppers. He had it all, but he concluded that it's meaningless. Nothing brought him joy. How many of y'all would be like, I'd just like to try that for a day and see if it would mean no right? But he concluded that it was all meaningless. But what Solomon was probably best known for, for pursuing happiness, was having multiple wives. Hundreds of wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 girlfriends he was shacking up with. So he had a thousand women, and each time he gets married, he must have thought, maybe this one will make me happy. 
happy. Maybe this time I'll be fully satisfied, but happiness never does come his way. And eventually, the pursuit of multiple wives and trying to find happiness is what brought him down. Take a look at 1 Kings chapter 11, the first four verses, page 191. We're going to hang there for a few minutes in the story book, and we're going to see what happens. Bottom of the page. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And there it is. In those first four verses I just read to you, we find the data in the black box of Solomon's life. Data that helps us know how the plane came down, but data that also helps us understand how we don't have to repeat this, this again. And so what I have discovered and what I want you to understand is Solomon in his pursuit of happiness decides not to do what God had told him to do. He decides that he knows what's better than what God knows when it comes to love and to sex and to marriage. And that's when things go really wrong. My wife and daughters were all out of town on Friday, and so I thought it'd be a great day for me to do a project, and I had been wanting to hang up a new, the new pendant lights above our kitchen island. We currently had, we had a, a fluorescent lights, giant fixture up there that was bright, but it wasn't what we wanted in the, the, the motif of the house, the decor of the house, and so this was a good opportunity. So I, uh, I took down the giant fixture that was up there, not knowing that it weighed probably between 40 and 60 pounds. And so I got two step ladders. It's about 800 feet in the air. At least it feels like it when you're up there. So I got out two step ladders, and um, I'm like, I got to the last two screws, and I thought, well, this is going to be a disaster because if, when I take those screws down, this thing's going to fly. It's, I can just see it knocking my ladder out. Hit, I fall down, hit my head on the granite, and somebody will find me dead later. I, I don't know. I thought, well, this, I don't know what am I going to do. And so I thought, well, i got to rig this thing somehow. Thank God. How many appreciate uh, the invention of bungee cords and duct tape. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? Yes? So I rigged something up and I got it to work and I thought, well, everybody would be proud of me. I should have filmed this because it worked. I, I, it, <laughs> if it didn't work, uh, it could have gone really, really wrong. But I got that big, huge thing down from the ceiling and when I got it down, I was like, oh no! The wiring coming out that powered that big light fixture was not centered above the island. And I thought to myself, I, 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 all along, I thought, well, it would be centered. Surely it would be, and it wasn't. Well, you can't have a pendant light hanging that is not centered above the eye. You know what I'm talking about? Well, you can, but my wife would not have appreciated that, so I, 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 I had to fix it. So I thought, okay, no problem. I'm going to drill a hole right where I want the wire to go, and then I'm going to have to go up in the attic and shimmy myself through the attic, and I'm going to have to fix fix the wire. I can handle the wire, but I've fixed the wiring up there. So I, I, I drill a hole, and I, I'm getting ready. I'm not going to go up in the attic yet. I thought, I better put 
put something that will mark it because I don't, I've never been in the attic before other than to throw Christmas decorations up around the corner above the garage. And so I stuck a stick all the way up through that. I secured the stick to make sure that it would stay and it's sticking probably three feet up in the air. I thought I can see that stick when I climb up there. So I went out in the garage, which is on the opposite kitty corner end of the house, and I pulled down the steps and I climbed up there and I went up with a flashlight and a lantern. And I also uh, took my tool bag and everything that I thought that I would need with me. And I, I get up in the attic and I realize there's all different kinds of roof lines, all, all connected. And it's, it's not a big house, but it sure does seem like it's about eight miles when you're up there, right? And I have to go across and I've got to shimmy myself through little tiny spots going through there. That, that I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a husky guy, right? So I've got, to, I've got to get through there and then I've got to go up six foot ledges where the roof overlaps. I've got to get myself up there and I've got to climb over and everything's that blown insulation. You know what I'm talking about. You got to step on the, on the rafters or you might fall through the ceiling too soon, probably Pastor John, but you might fall through the ceiling and get hurt yourself, right? And I was like, I don't want to do that. I got up in the roof and I couldn't even see, I left a lantern, I couldn't even see the light from the lantern when I got to the other side of the house. I was so far over, nooks and crannies, and I thought to myself, nobody will ever find my body. I'm, I, I mean, I got to survive, right? This is a survival moment or else I'm going to have to go through the ceiling and I know that doesn't work out really well. So I, I've got to survive. Well, I'm looking for this, I'm crawling and I'm getting across these, these things and I finally see, I'm like, well, this, did the stick fall through? It was as far as you possibly, it took me 40, I'm not lying, 45 minutes from the time I entered that attic till I finally got to that stick. And I got to the stick and uh, this was, it was hot and it was, I was like, what if I would have come up here in the summertime? Um, but it was, it, I, I got it done. I, fortunately, there was just enough wires, able to move the wire, stick it back through, got out of the attic. As soon as I got out of the attic, I'm just dripping with sweat, which means insulation is sticking to you. So I jumped in the shower, got all cleaned up, took some deep breaths, chugged a bottle of water and said, the hard part's done. I went to the box that we had ordered this pendant light. I opened up the box. And why don't they send it to you assembled? Does anybody have any idea why? I have no idea, but it wasn't assembled. It did, however, happen to have a, uh, a booklet of instructions, right? And so I'm like, well, I, can, I, can, I know how to put a light together. Have you ever done that before? I know how to assemble a light. I can handle putting a light together. So I, I look at the picture, I kind of glance at it, and I begin to assemble it, and it's, it's four, I think it's four lights across, and it's got these posts going up, and then it's got cords going up, and the chain thing coming down, and you gotta put all the, the wiring through, and you know, you gotta screw the things on. I put it together four times, and took it apart four times, because I forgot to do something to it, the second time, the third time, and the fourth time. Now, there's this little part that I forgot to do, and I, oh my God, Gosh, what are you doing, Troy? You've got, you actually have an education. Why can't you figure this thing out? I, I couldn't seem to figure it out. Finally, I looked at the instructions a little bit more detailed. I had been trying to follow them, but I thought, well, I, I got this, I got this. How many of y'all know it always goes wrong when you say those three words? I got this, right? It just seems to go wrong. What I discovered is there is a difference between not understanding the instructions and ignoring the instructions altogether. When, when you ignore the instructions altogether, you're saying that you know best. I, I think that I know more than the one who invented, who designed, who manufactured, and who produced the product that I am assembling, that I am putting together. 
And I think that's what happens a lot of times when it comes to love and to sex and to marriage. We have these directions from God that are written to us in a book, a manual called the B-I-B-L-E, and he says, here's how it works, and here's how I designed it, the inventor of the whole thing, and this is how I created it to be. And we look at that instruction book called the Bible, and we say, I got this because we know better than the one who invented it. And the one who designed it, the one who created it, the one who invented it, is looking at us going, I've given you all the answers, and we're like, I got this. And so for the rest of my time that I am graced to be, be able to spend with you today, I'm gonna talk about four hot topics that I know will be politically incorrect, but uh, they're clearly stated in the instruction manual in the Bible. And so I wanna start by sharing this scripture with you that comes from Ezekiel 33, six. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. That is God's word speaking to leaders in the church saying, here's the deal. If people in your church sin, they're gonna be held accountable for that, but if you knew the answer to the sin but refused to talk about it because you were afraid, um, then I'll hold you accountable for their blood. You see, there will be a higher level of accountability for anybody who stands behind the sacred desk declaring the word of God. Not only for what we did say, but what, for what we avoided saying. And so we're gonna talk today about some serious things and I'm committing my life to trusting the one who wrote the book. Solomon thinks that he knows better than God and here's how this plays out. First, he marries women from other countries. Please do not misunderstand and get hung up on this. God is not, he does not have a problem with ethnicities marrying. That's not the issue with people from varying ethnicities marrying. That is not the problem. The problem is not an ethnicity problem. The problem is an idolatry problem. God has a real problem with that. These women did not worship the God of Solomon. Instead, they worshiped false gods. False gods like what? Well, the Moabites worshiped the God of Shamish, who would have required child sacrifices, and yet Solomon married those women. The, the, the Sardinians and the Philistines worshiped the God of Astra, who promoted temple prostitution, and, let, and yet Solomon married those women. And, and so these faiths were very different from Solomon. And eventually his wives, the Bible we just read about it, tells us that he turns his heart toward their lowercase g gods and he turns his back on the capital G, one true God. And so often this is the way it works out. So I'm gonna say to you, number one, the Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked. God is directing that to those who are dating, who are single, who are engaged, and if you are with somebody who doesn't share your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm sure you have great intentions. 
You're like a missionary dater. Like, pastor, put me on the missions payroll because, you know, I'm out there. I'm just trying to get people saved. Surely I'm going to get them uh, to, to come to know Jesus. And the truth is, you will not. And I bet there are a lot of people within the sound of my voice, either out there watching in Internet Zone or those people that are here today that would, could testify to this of how this just doesn't work out the vast majority of the time. And so if you're dating somebody who does not share your faith in Jesus, you are putting yourself and your future children at great risk. You are being selfish. God says it will be easier for them to get you to turn your heart away from him than it will be for you to get them to turn their heart toward, toward God. And so Solomon chooses willfully and intentionally to disobey God's directions because I got this. I'll be able to turn all their hearts toward you, God. And he doesn't. In fact, it says just the opposite. So number one, I'm telling you, the Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked. But number two, I'm telling you, the Bible tells us not to have multiple spouses, also known as polygamy. Solomon takes polygamy to a whole nother level. I mean, a thousand women. And God has defined marriage different than that. Here's what he says in Genesis chapter two, verse number 24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they, became, and they become one flesh. The word united, guys, it's, it's a word that means bonded together. It doesn't allow for more than one. It's just one. It's, it, God's, God's idea is one and one being united as, as one. That's how God designed it to be. But Solomon's like, eh, I'm gonna do things a little bit differently. I wanna be happy. Pastor, this is what makes me happy. This is what my heart is telling me to do. Well, you are a fool. And in his pursuit of happiness, he ignores what God has said. Now, um, I think Solomon is probably thinking, God, you know I love her. And I know that number 273 is gonna make me happy. She's gonna make me happy. Why would you not want me to be happy, God? Here's a mantra for you. God wants you to be holy, and only when you're holy will you find true happiness. But if you seek after happiness, you'll never find holiness. Number 273 wasn't going to make him happy because it violates what God has said. So maybe you're thinking, cool, Troy. Polygamy out. Won't have more than one spouse. Understand, are we free to go because I'm getting kind of hungry? No, because it's not about polygamy. I'm going to get you here. It's about something else. In the culture in which we live, I ask myself, God, what is the cultural equivalent to polygamy, to multiple wives. What is it, and what are you trying to teach us? Because I've watched sister wives, I know that's wrong, right? Um, and the Mormon church has got it messed up, right? Having multiple wives, it just doesn't work out. I know that that's not healthy, and there's all kinds of jealousies and insecurities, and it just doesn't work. It's not what you planned, God. But in our society, what is it that you want to address with us today when it comes to marriage? That brings me to number three. The Bible tells us not to live together before we get married. I am not suggesting just living arrangements. 
I am saying not to have sex before you get married. It is not that God hates you. It is that you are going to create a lifestyle of pain for you and for the one that you're choosing to be with, whether or not they're a Christian. But Troy, come on. Doesn't every smart person take the car for a test drive before they buy it? There's a verse in Proverbs that says, there's a way that seems right unto man. There's a, there's a way that, that makes sense to us. There's a way that seems rational. It seems fulfilling to us. It, and I'm not hurting anybody. It's, it's, all, it's about me. It's not about anybody else. There's a way that seems right, but the end thereof leads to death. It leads to destruction. If we contextualize this verse for our application today, we could say there is a way that seems right to couples, but the end leads to divorce because that's what we're seeing. Let me just tell you what it says. According to a secular, a non-Christian university, the University of Wisconsin, they have reported, they did an exhaustive research. It was really incredible as I read this report that about those who live together before they get married, they discovered that those who live together before they get married have a divorce rate of 75%. That is 25% higher than the national average. That means if you live together before you get married, you have one-fourth higher percentage than everybody else a chance of getting divorced. They also went on to say that only 15 out of every 100 cohabitating couples will actually be married 10 years from now. They conclude, this is a secular university, this is not a good way to get ready for marriage. That's what they said. This is the world shouting what God has already said. He gave us, he gave us the manual. He gave us the directions. And the Bible tells us in numerous places that we are to protect the sacredness of marriage. Hebrews 13 verse number four tells us marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Uh, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. It's, it, God's not gonna be, I know what I said, but you know, I really like you. Hmm, hmm. And Solomon probably thought, well, maybe the next one. Maybe the next one. But the irony is the more that he added, the less likely he was to discover the intimate joy in that relationship that he desperately longed for, which I said number one. Number one, I told you that we are not to be unequally yoked. And I said, number two, that we are, the Bible tells us not to have multiple spouses. And I told you, number three, that we're not supposed to live together before we get married. And number four, the Bible says that same-sex marriage is a sin. Human beings do not own the copyright to marriage. God does. It would be one thing if as a society, marriage was our idea, like we invented it, like we created the whole concept of, of marriage. Then we could pivot. We could change it whenever we wanted to. We can redefine it. But God was the one who originally defined what marriage is right out of the gate. He told us what marriage is is. And so it violates what the Bible would teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 1 when it talks about how homosexuality is a sin. And yet we go with what seems right. 
I realize this is a difficult topic to talk about in our current culture because number one, you're going to be blasted and you can do the, the woke culture in which we live. I'm okay with that. But the more difficult thing is it's highly likely that everybody in here knows somebody who is involved somehow in the homosexual lifestyle, in an alternative lifestyle. And what's really hard is when we, when we put a name on the blank instead of generally speaking against an agenda. But when we know somebody who's ensnared or entangled, um, who's caught up in that lifestyle that is genuinely nice, that really seems to care about us, and they just happen to have this thing, and it's really hard not to, not to, to look at it and say, but they're not really hurting anybody, and this is between them and their partner. And I'm not even trying to come against individuals, guys. I'm not, not doing that. Is it hard for pastors to talk about hot topics like this? Sure it is. Sure it is. Um, if it was my message, but it's not my message. Um, I'm a UPS guy. I come to your door. I got a box. It seems to be gyrating a little bit, but I got a box. Ding dong, ring the bell. You open up the door. I hand you the gyrating box, and you take the gyrating box, and you kind of wonder what the heck is inside the box. You're really curious because it's moving a little bit, and I begin to walk back to my truck, and I'm I'm walking back, and you leave the door open because you're thinking, well, I got to open up this box and see what it is, and you open up the box, and out jumps, I don't know, a rabid raccoon, (laughs) right? And it comes right at you, Um, and you fight off the rabid raccoon, and you're trying to get, and you finally get it back in the box, and you get it tape back close again are you going to chase after the ups guy because somebody sent you a rabid raccoon no you're going to look on the label on that box and see who in the world sent you a rabid raccoon and you're going to talk to them (laughs) i didn't i didn't put anything in the box god put it in the box and i'm just a ups guy and that's what we are as preachers and that's what we are as teachers of god's word and the reason it's hard to talk about this though isn't because of what's in the box it's because of something else it's because of hateful judgmental hate-filled angry hypocrites that are out there like a pastor that i read about from the great state of north carolina and I love the state of North Carolina. I have a lot of friends there. We have some schools we oversee there as well. And, but in, in the state of North Carolina, this pastor said, quote, gays and lesbians should be rounded up and held behind an electric fence until they die off. Let me be very clear. I am not one of those guys. I, I, I am not on his team. And it scares me that someone could associate us as Christians with somebody like that. We are not on the same team. Jesus is full of grace and love and compassion and mercy. But Jesus also spoke the truth. His heart is full of love and it's full of care and concern for everybody he was talking to. And and if I read my Bible correctly, the harshest words that Jesus used were directed at the people who were righteous and arrogant and hypocrites. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying that if, if you've been on the receiving end of condemnation such as this from some selfish, angry, hateful, prideful people, maybe they had the best of intentions or not, but if you've been on the receiving end of that on behalf of God's church, I am sorry. That is not the way that it's supposed to be. That is not who we are. That does not represent the church. It does not represent the kingdom of God. It does not represent our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. When I um, put something together, when I was assembling my, my light fixture, what helped me in the end the most wasn't the words, wasn't the directions, the instructions, 
but the diagrams, the pictures that were on those pages. Not just the picture on the front cover, but as you open it up, you have the diagrams. Then they have the enlarging diagrams of the wires and where to put them and how to loop them and what to do and what screw and what bolt goes where. You don't even have to know why, but you can see it. I think what we have in the church far too much is we have a list of directions, but what I think the world needs is a picture of what a godly family should look like. And I pray that in all of our churches and all of our influence, that our church would be full of marriages and families that would create a picture of what it should like when we follow the directives found in the word of God. And when we do that, people are going to want what we've got. They're going to want to listen to the message of the goodness and the greatness of the God that we serve. You know what Solomon did? Solomon surrounded himself with these women that ultimately drew Solomon away from God because Solomon thought he knew better than God and he did not feel like doing what God had asked him to do. But when we get to the end of Solomon's story, he's full of deep regret. And then he says, I now realize that I should have followed God's directions. And here's, here's, here's the deal. I know to some of you I'm an old guy, but I can remember, I can remember like it was yesterday when I was young. I've been um, uh, ministering to a brother in the church who's very, very ill and will likely go to be with Jesus soon. And he's got stories after stories of, I was just there. I was, I don't, I look in the mirror and I'm not, I don't, I don't feel like I'm this old. And you'll do that one day too. And everybody's got to figure out their own stuff. But as a counselor, as a, as a, as a biblical counselor, somebody who's trying to help you make some right decisions, um, the church is full of people who have said to me from time to time, I wish someone would have told me the directions. I wish someone would have showed me a picture of the directions. So here's what we're being asked to do as we've read through chapter 13 of the story. Here's what God wants to speak to the church. And if we're ignoring God's directions in one area or another within our marriages or our families, then the Bible would call us to repent. And so if you're in a dating relationship and you know that you're unequally yoked, repent of your sin. If you're, if you're a couple, who's living together outside the bounds of marriage or sexually active outside of the bounds of marriage. I know it might be inconvenient, might not feel right. It might not make sense on paper, but repent of your sin and do what God asks you to do. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction or maybe you've been acting on that, God doesn't hate you. Believe it or not, he's not even angry at you. He wants you to be free. Repent of your sin and put your trust in God. If your marriage is not being built on God's word, if you're not using the Bible as your blueprint, as, as your directions 
for living, your instructions for life, then repent of your sin today. And when we repent, God is full of grace. The Bible says if we repent of our sins, guys, he is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what we want to do as a church, I'm not not held accountable for your decisions. I'm held accountable for giving you the instructions and modeling that for you. But you'll be held accountable for the people that you lead in your life if you don't follow God's instructions also. See that whole trickling effect. So what what we want to do is we want to leave you with this. God, I, I want to follow your directions. In every year of my life, I want to follow your directions because I know there's a way that seems right, but I want to go against the flow. I want to go counterculture. I want to be honest and integrous. I want to do what I'm supposed to do for you. God, I want to follow your directions. Mighty God, we come to you today. We say thank you for your word. Sometimes your word makes us feel really good. Other times your word convicts us. But both, in both instances, they draw us nigh unto you. And so that's what we pray for today. God, that we would be drawn closer to you in deeper fellowship and in richer connection with you than ever before. In the mighty, mighty name of Jesus Christ.